Good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, or good evening, or wherever it is out there online that you're watching us. We're just glad that you're here, glad that you're joining us for uh, the beginning of our new series, our new Advent series. It's called Good News of Great Joy. And we'll get into why that is, but this is a season that historically for me has been one of all kinds of angst and pressure and, and really the opposite of joy. And I've been trying so hard lately to focus in on the joyful aspects. And so this message today is why the good news of Jesus is reason for great joy. And so that's what we're going to get into. Before I get into the message, a couple things. Number one, thank you to Pastor Craig for his teaching last weekend. Um, and that message, I don't know about you, but that message spoke to me, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. So if you missed that, you can go back, Facebook, YouTube, um, and check out those messages and, and just see what he had to say. It's really good. And if you watch the 9 a.m., you get a bonus little blooper reel in there of something that happened. I want to give too much of it away, but it's worth your time. Um, speaking of worth your time, on Facebook and YouTube, depending on where you're watching out there, uh, or if you're in here, we've been doing our Advent devotional series uh, through that. Every day, post a small video, 7 a.m. in the morning, just a couple minutes, just a, a way to be intentional together about focusing on Jesus this season. We should always do that, but life gets in the way, and life gets hectic, and it's just one thing after another, it seems like, and before you know it, Worshiping our Lord and Savior becomes a sliver of our day, something added to our day if we have time versus the focus of our day. And it's so hard to do that. I mean, in, in this season where everything is vying for your attention, maybe more so than ever in terms of everything being more difficult than it's ever been before in my life, certainly, it's so hard to, to focus just take the time to take a deep breath and step back from life and just focus on Jesus. It's so hard to do. When we talk about Advent, Advent is, is a season, it's a time leading up to Christmas, the birth of Christ, where we just, the idea is to be just intentional about focusing our hearts, preparing our hearts for Christ. And again, sometimes that means just tuning out the world, setting that aside, and just focusing on him. <clears throat> Excuse me, but the question that I have is who has time for that? Right? Who's got time to take a step back? Because if you're like me, I feel like an octopus sometimes, like just trying to find, I wish I had more arms to do all the things that I have to do. And if I stop any one of those, then it's going to catch fire and be a problem. And so I can't afford to take a deep breath and step back. I just have to keep go, go, go. Who's got time to just take a deep breath and step back? It's so hard. To, let, me, let me connect that idea of preparing your heart. So we all prepare for Christmas especially, right? Some people start months in advance. I know Costco started six months ago. I think it was 4th of July when I started seeing Christmas decorations there. But in a normal year, how do you prepare for Christmas? How do you prepare let me give you a couple different examples and see which one resonates with you. Here's the first one. Mm-hmm. 
Does it look like that at all? Sometimes it's like the morning of when guests are going to arrive, or sometimes it's weeks before. But that's often what it looks like. Now, if at my house, what it's historically looked like is much more like this. We're going to have the best-looking house in town, Russ. I've always wanted to do this. It's a lot of lights, Dad. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's a lot of work, too. But if I'm out in the cold and I'm committed to decorating the house, I'm going to do it right, and I'm going to do it big. You want something you can be proud of, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. Sure you do. I think you might be overdoing it, Dad. Russ, when was the last time I overdid anything? Come on, unravel these. You have to check every bulb. A little knot here. You work on that. <laughs> That's what it looks like for me, or at least it has. Now that I don't have kids to untangle the knots, I don't, I don't do lights. No, I, I do, but if they have a knot, more than one knot, they're going in the trash. I get a new one. That's preparation in the physical sense. Um, and it can be, it's certainly necessary at some level. Um, we all overdo it or underdo it to, to whatever our norm is. But that's physical preparation. And it can be, it can be either really fun or it can be really draining or a combination of both. Anybody ever dread getting out the boxes and decorating for Christmas? Anybody ever just do it because you're supposed to? There have been times where I admit that I've been like that. I'll bring, I don't feel like doing it, but I'll bring up the boxes full of lights and maybe something will spark and I'll feel excited about doing it. Always does at some point, but it's various degrees. Advent now, the season, the season that we're in, Advent, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas and the weeks in between is a time for spiritual preparation. Not preparing the house and lights and shopping and, and all those things that we, that we typically do and fill our time with as if we needed something else to fill our time with. We add on all these other things this time of year. And it's no wonder it gets to be a time of just stress throughout this year. Our preparation for the arrival of the promised Messiah should look so different than a to-do list. It shouldn't look like physical preparation. It is something that happens on the inside. Now, it can be, it, it won't be draining to prepare spiritually. It won't be tiring. It won't drain your bank account. It won't be dependent on Amazon Prime. How many of you are thankful when you look and go, okay, I can still order presents and they'll still make it by Christmas? There aren't going to be any lines at the mall. Preparing yourself spiritually for the coming of a Messiah, the birth of Jesus, begins and ends on the inside. That's where it belongs. It's an internal preparation that we do. And we see all the way, it's been happening forever. Way back, 600 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zephaniah said this. This is Zephaniah 3.14. I think we have it on screen. It says, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He's telling them to be excited and rejoice with all your heart. Be excited. And he's trying to tell them why 
Some of them get it. Most of them didn't because they had nothing to connect it to. And then even if they got that fervor and got that fire at the moment, as the years went by with no fulfillment of that, it kind of just waned. Who's going to wait 600 years for a promise? We see that fulfilled, though, after the birth of Christ. And, and Paul talks about it in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 3.1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the fulfillment of that promise. But it took 600 plus years for even that part of it to be fulfilled. And that's a long time to wait for the fulfillment of a promise. I don't know about you, but again, Amazon Prime, it says two days. If it's three, I'm like, what's going on? But I believe preparing that internal preparation that we should do as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, that it means primarily filling your heart with the right things. And I believe in this instance, filling your your heart with hope. Filling your heart with hope. And hope is such a hard thing to hang on to. Because no sooner than you get get some hopeful news, has anybody experienced this in their lives? As soon as you get some hopeful news, immediately something will come in to try and take that away. It happens all the time, without fail. You get good news, and you almost start bracing immediately for the bad news that's going to follow up behind it. It's just such a hard thing to hang on to. Now, who has read headlines like these in just the past In just the past few months, here's the first headline. Experts predict our darkest days are still ahead of us. What about the next one? Going to grandma's for the holidays is just like putting a gun to her head. And then the next one. Experts say a vaccine-resistant mutation of the coronavirus is likely to hit soon. Yay. (laughs) Who's super excited about all that? And that's just, that's just a sliver of, there's a hundred other things going on that are bombarding you with headlines like that. Hundreds of them. And any good news that you are able to find is likely to be buried. buried. We used to say it's on page four. You know, it's, it's hidden somewhere. Maybe you can find it, but you have to go looking for it because it's not going to be out there presented to you. It's going to be minimized. Or, at best, it's going to be delivered alongside this catastrophic series of what-ifs. Nothing can just stand alone as hopeful good news. Isn't it crazy how that works? Much of one of the biggest tricks that I think the media has done and has been able to pull off. Now, if you work in media, this isn't a blanket statement, every journalist, everybody, but much of the mainstream media seems to be geared towards keeping us in this place of turmoil, good or bad. No matter what side of the aisle you you fall politically or where you fall on the spectrum, it's always us versus those who don't think like us. And they want you to think that way. And hope... Every bit of good news is immediately countered with this heavy dose of doom and gloom. 
always. In fact, I think one common narrative that's out there right now is that the idea of focusing on or spreading good news or positivity or reasons for hope and optimism is just nothing more than childism, being childish. It's nothing more than burying your head in the sand. It's wishful thinking. That seems to be the narrative out there. And that really, those who are educated or woke, what they do is that they put their hope and trust in those people who know better. There are people who know much better than us simple Christians putting our hope in Christ. That's, that's childish. That's childish. Maybe somebody with a lot more education than you. Maybe somebody with a bigger form than you. Maybe somebody with a whole bunch more Instagram followers than you. Because then your opinion really counts. The size of your platform, that's what matters in terms of spreading truth, right? Maybe it's just something you can see and touch or prove in a lab. Those are much more, it's much more educated and sensible to put your hope in those things. Putting your hope in Jesus is, is minimized to the point to where you can be ridiculed simply for holding on to hope. Now, I'm not discounting the contribution of science or claiming this situation is all a hoax or anywhere on that whole spectrum. I'm not claiming any of those things. I am just saying this, though. The idea of looking at hope and optimism as childish, as something that should be set aside in favor of the hard scientific truth, isn't that the same trick the devil has pulled with the good news of Jesus? He's pulled that trick all throughout time. How can you hope and trust in something you can't tangibly see? It's childish. Optimism and hope are foolish, and they should be left with the children. As an adult, you should grow beyond that, become skeptical, become cynical, become saying, prove it to me, then I'll believe it. Biblical hope is not like that. Hope in Jesus is not, is not that kind of worldly hope. I hope it works out. I hope things come out the right way, the way I want. I hope the Broncos win tonight. Very little chance that's going to happen. And, but I hope that. In a, in a worldly sense, I hope that. It'd be fun like to see that for our community. I'd like to see that for the players who work hard. I hope that, but I can't do anything about that. It's not going to affect my life one way or another if they do or they don't, and that's just a roll of the dice. Let's see what happens. I hope they win. What happens? Biblical hope is much different than that, and so when we say good news of great joy, this is something we can place our hope in. Let me explain biblical godly hope to you. First one is the scripture. This is Old Testament scripture. Again, hundreds of years before Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, that scripture has been quoted a thousand times, at least half of those by me. I love that scripture, but let's look at that word hope. To give you a future, we know what a future is. What's What's hope? Hope 
in this case, it's Old Testament scripture, so it's written in Hebrew, and that's a Hebrew word, tikvah. Hope translates as tikvah, and tikvah literally means, and Pastor Craig alluded to this last week when he taught, it means a cord that binds or connects. In other words, like a lifeline, a safety rope. That's what tikvah means. The paraphrase there is God plans to bind you literally to himself, to hold that safety line. You go out in the world and do your thing, he's got you. That's what hope means in that context. And then in the Greek, in the New Testament, everything switches to Greek, and we see that same concept. Let's read this one to you, Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, that word hope in that context in the Greek is the word elpes. And elpes, the definition is an expectation of what is certain. That's what that means. And so it's the same as the Hebrew, just looks at it from a little bit of a different angle. If you put the two together, the paraphrase is your reward for remaining tied or bound to God is certain. It is certain. It's unshakable. The the safety line, the lifeline that God throws for you, that is something you can count on. It's It's not a let's see if this rope holds, like Pastor Craig from last weekend. Who else was a little uncertain as he was settling into those ropes? It is a certainty. You don't have to think about it. Now, hope in the things of this world can be sketchy. Am I right? You put your hope in the things of this world, and it's, it's a roll of the dice every single time. Not so with our hope in Jesus. We can count on that. And throughout history, God has left us breadcrumbs, if you will. That's how I like to look at biblical prophecy. I like to look at them as breadcrumbs. As you're hiking, think about, I used this example before. You're out in the wilderness, maybe it's someplace you've gone, you're on your way back, and you feel a little bit lost. Or maybe you're on a road trip someplace. You feel a little bit lost, and you're kind of looking around for something that looks familiar. And you spot a, a building or a billboard or a tree or a bush or something that goes, okay, wait, now I know where I am. What does that do to your heart? You're like, oh, I can take a deep breath now because I know where I am. I like to look at biblical prophecy that way. Little breadcrumbs that the Lord has left us so that we can see he's been there. He saw it coming. He told us he saw it coming. He told us what would happen. We may not be to the what would happen yet, but we can have peace because we see it. In fact, we teach a class here called uh, Bedrock. And one of the classes in Bedrock series is about the Bible and how do we know it's true? How do we know we can count on it? How do we know what's in the Bible is true and authentic? Well, there's a guy, his name is J. Barton Payne. He's a theologian, and he put together this encyclopedia. It's called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. Sounds like a really light read, right? (laughs) If you want some light reading tonight, just, you know, sit around and do that. But it lists, that Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy lists 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament alone and 578 prophecies 
in the New Testament. How many people we have that are good at math doing that in your head? That's 1,817 total prophecies in the New Testament. Some people measure a little bit more, a little bit less. But of the events that were to have taken place by now, because some of them are still unfulfilled yet. They'll happen in the future, and they're meant to. Of the ones that were to have taken place by now, every single one of them happened exactly as prophesied in the Word. Exactly. And specifically about Jesus, there are about 400 in the Old Testament. And everyone, again, that has to have taken place by now has done that. Church, we can count on the Word of God. He has told us, I'll be there for you. He has left us breadcrumbs and a map saying, I'll be there for you. This is what's going to happen. Hold on. And time after time, it plays out exactly as he had ordained it to do. Now, if you're into that kind of thing, or maybe you've got a friend, or you kind of like maybe skeptical a little bit on some of these prophecies and how these things work, there's a book. It's an author. His name is Josh McDowell. Did a small book. It's, it's really thin. This is an easy, light read, but it's so fun. It's called More Than a Carpenter. And so if you would like to look a little bit more on how we can prove, not just because Scripture says so, that Jesus was the Messiah. How can we prove that from a scientific standpoint? I have several of those books on the back shelf back there. If you'd like to grab one for yourself or maybe for a friend, grab them. It's our gift to you, and I think there's a few back there. If we run out, find me. I've got some more. Grab that and read it. It is amazing. But the bottom line here is on Christmas Day, we celebrate not just the birth of a baby, not just the birth of Jesus, but we celebrate the fulfillment of God's promise. And to me, that is reason, and that's good news of great joy. I'm going to read this section of Scripture to you. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Okay, and I'll read it to you. I use the New American Standard. If you have a different version, yours might read a little bit differently. And if you don't have one, that's fine. I'm going to read it to you. Just listen to what's going on here. All right. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." I love that. I love that account 
of what goes on. Matthew has a similar account, but just from a different perspective. But let's take a look at what's going on here. First of all, <coughs> Quirinius is just a, he's a, a local governor of the area. Caesar Augustus is kind of the, he's the guy in charge, right? Caesar Augustus, he puts out this decree. What he's trying to do here, he's not trying to get an accurate count for human services. He's not trying to get an accurate count for stimulus checks. He's trying to close a tax loophole. Because here's what happens. The Roman citizens, Roman citizens are engaged in their community. They're counted much like we are now. The government can find you. If you're a Roman citizen, the government knows where you are, okay, and you pay your taxes. The Hebrews, though, being a second class, kind of a subclass, oftentimes would just sort of fall through the cracks. They traveled around a lot. They were a lot more nomadic. If you were born and raised in this area, you would move to somewhere else, and you'd kind of lose track of where everybody was. And what was happening is a lot of Hebrews were going a lot of time without paying any taxes, because they would go from one town to another. Nobody knew them. They were either traveling, and they just fell in this loophole, and Caesar Augustus had to close that loophole, make sure everybody paid what they were supposed to pay. Now, tax collectors were chosen typically from among the people. Any given village or city or town would have tax collectors that worked for the Romans, but they were typically one of the people. They might have been a Hebrew living in a Hebrew village or town, but they worked for the governor. They worked for the, the, the government, government in Rome, ultimately. Matthew was one of those villains, one of those tax collectors. And they knew they would be familiar with who belonged in that town and who lived there. And so the decree came down to go back to your ancestral hometown. Go back. It might not be where you live at the moment. Go back to where you came from and be counted there. Now, this didn't hold true for the Roman citizens. The Roman citizens just went on with life as normal. This decree was only for the Hebrews. Go back home. I don't care where you're living now. Go back to your ancestral home. Who'd like to be told right now, wherever your ancestral home is, you just need to pack up and just go there because we have to count you. Seems like a tough move. Mary and Joseph had to leave their home and their business in Nazareth and travel to Bethlehem. As a result of this, 90 miles. They didn't take a bus. They didn't fly. They walked. A pregnant Mary walked 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem just to be counted. So you might be saying to yourself, cool story, bro. Why do we care? Or maybe you're not saying that. But you might be. Why is it important? And you probably think that Caesar Augustus forcing all these people, I'm sure Mary wasn't the only one who was pregnant at the time, all kinds of them, but forcing them to walk 90 miles or wherever it is to abandon their businesses and their lives and go to this place, you might think that that was kind of a jerk move, right? Kind of like a lot of the things that the government decrees now. Doesn't make sense. We want to argue with it. Well, why can't, you, why can't you just count me here? Why can't you just... There are all kinds of better ideas probably that happened around that time. The point is Caesar Augustus said, nope, we're doing it like that. And they did it like that. This part of the story is so important though because it shows us that God knew 
well in advance how this was all going to play out. He knew well in advance what was going to happen, what Caesar Augustus was going to decree, how people were going to respond to it, and he knew that. How do we know that he knew that? Because Jesus would have been born in Nazareth had not the government intervened and said, you need to go back home. This was the first time this happened. This isn't something that happened all the time that could have been predicted. It's the first time this happened. We see back in Old Testament Scripture, again, hundreds of years before Jesus, prophecy about this. Micah, uh, prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you, from you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His going forths are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God ordained that. God knew that was going to happen and left that little breadcrumb. Just a tiny little side note, if you didn't really pay attention, to Micah hundreds of years before. Not for Micah. Micah's like, okay, fine, that's where he comes from. Didn't mean anything to him or the people that he might have said that to, but it means something to us now. We can look back and go hundreds of years before Christ, all these things had to line up to fulfill this prophecy that was given to this prophet, minor prophet, off in this place. That's for us. That's a breadcrumb. God says, I knew this was going to happen. So when we look around and see all the jerk moves that the government is doing right now, how do we know that God's not going to use those for his purposes? In fact, we know just the opposite because he's always done that. He has always promised to use those things for our good. And he gives us these prophecies like this to prove to us that he is sovereign. Now, we'll take a closer look at the birth of Jesus and how all that happened later. But let's check in. Remember the second half of that scripture. Let's check in with this little group of scared shepherds. Can you imagine them out in the fields? There weren't a whole lot of street lights or anything like that. It was pitch black probably at night. And suddenly, this light from the angel shines upon them. Can you imagine how terrifying that would probably be? They're out in the middle of, of nowhere. And this happens to them. Now, the scripture for that is Luke 2, uh, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, if you're like me, I've kind of read that many times over the years. And the shepherds are just kind of a, a footnote. I didn't really think too much about them. Shepherds and flocks of sheep seem to be kind of ubiquitous in that area. It seems like everywhere you turn around, there's a shepherd and a flock. Why were these guys special or different? Or were they special and different? Let's look at this really quickly. You have to do some study to get into this. So... I may or may not do a, a side study on this later, maybe an overtime um, video on this. But if you really look at these shepherds and the sheep, there's a very good chance, given the time of year that it was, given the area in the same region, you research where they probably were, the time of year that it probably was, and it all points to this flock of sheep probably being special. Most likely, these sheep were ones that were set aside for Passover, for the Passover sacrifice. Okay, during the Passover sacrifice, people would come from all over the place to Jerusalem, and they wouldn't, you wouldn't bring 
a spotless lamb with you. You wouldn't bring doves. You would pick them up when you got there. And this is what these sheep were being, were being held for. They were being specially cared for, specially cared for by a special group of shepherds who took very good care of them. In fact, um, as one of my good friends online pointed out, the, the whole idea of the swaddling cloths that you would wrap Jesus in that we see in Scripture over, what would happen is that when a lamb was born and it was perfect, you look at it and say, this, this is perfect. They would actually wrap it in cloths, carefully take it someplace to be cared for even at a higher level of care. And that process, that understanding of the lamb being sacrificed was something that these shepherds would have understood. They would have known. So even though they were just regular shepherds, they would have understood the symbolism of the lamb wrapped in cloths. It would have registered with them, and that combined with the words of the angel to them would have really resonated in their spirits. That's why these special, why these shepherds were called to witness the birth of our Savior. Now, you might think, why not, why not call the experts? Because these guys, these little shepherds, who are they going to tell and who's going to believe them? Maybe they tell each other, but who's going to believe them? Wouldn't it be better to call in the experts? If this were to happen today, it'd be surrounded by news vans and big lights and satellite dishes and everything like that to, to live stream the birth of the Savior. Isn't that how we do it now? That's totally how we do it now. But think about this. The Pharisees would have been probably the natural choice if you're going to pick an expert. Go witness the birth of this Savior so that you can, with your authority, you can then spread the word of the Messiah is here. But that didn't happen. Why didn't that happen? I think probably because, first thing they would have done, they probably would have got together and had a meeting to discuss how to go about the promotional campaign. How are we going to roll out the news of this? Or worse yet, they would have dismissed him out of hand. They would have said, no way, this is our promised Messiah. Born from these humble, humble people, a carpenter and his wife, and, and born in a manger. This is not, this can't be our Messiah. They might well and probably would have just dismissed it out of hand because it didn't look like what they expected. These shepherds, though, would have had no such inhibitions over the fact that he wasn't born in a palace or wasn't born of, of, of kings and born of royalty. They would have seen the lamb wrapped in cloths and that would have connected with their spirits. This is our Passover lamb. It meant something to them, and they wouldn't have let all those other trappings get in the way. So now that, that the shepherds, it's been announced to them and they've gone and they've seen it, how did they go about passing on that announcement? How did they do that? Anybody remember? So the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah, that's one thing, and then the announcement of the angel telling them to go look, that's, that's a lot of news. Who do they tell? We see this in Luke 2, 10 to 11. But the angel said to them, again, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's big news. Who did they tell? And how did they do it? 
Can you imagine if it was today like a gender reveal party for the baby Jesus? <laughs> How that would go? I tried to find some videos or something that would be funny, but in, what I see in my mind is way funnier than that. Just trust me, it was hilarious. Here, though, is what these simple shepherds, again, simple, simple shepherds, here's what they did. The first thing they did, Luke 2.18, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Okay, so they did tell somebody. Who did they tell? At this point, who are they talking to when they made it known? Just Mary and Joseph. That's all they're telling. So they travel all the way, and they tell Mary and Joseph, we're here because the angel told us this was going to happen. That's all they do. And there's nobody around, a couple of animals, maybe a stray person walking by, but it's mainly just Mary and Joseph that they tell. But what's the result of this? How did just that simple like, hey, we came and we, came, we were told this was going to happen and there it is. It doesn't seem like a lot. But here's Mary's response, Luke 2.19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary treasured. All these things is just the words that the shepherds spoke to them, that they had been told. Pondering them in her heart. She treasured them. It meant something to her. Why? Did it mean something to her that these simple shepherds came and told her that? Well, first of all, Gabriel, the angel, had told Mary that she was going to have a child. And what was her reaction? She was skeptical. She's like, I don't know how that's going to happen. She was skeptical. She heard it, even from an angel. And she's like, eh, I don't know. Then she travels and she meets her sister Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is pregnant with John, soon to be John the Baptist at this point. And the baby leaps in her womb. Remember when coming in contact with Mary. And Elizabeth tells Mary, that. So Elizabeth had confirmed to Mary that that had happened, and Mary's like, okay, something's happening at this point, but she still wasn't quite sure about it. Now these shepherds come in, and they confirm to her. This is the third confirmation that this is happening. They confirm to her who this is. Now, Elizabeth, Mary's sister, she would have had reason to maybe be optimistic and, and pump up her sister, it would have been easy to kind of discount that. Yeah, but you have to say that because you're my sister. Maybe. These shepherds didn't know her. They didn't have any reason to be there. They didn't have any reason to bring that specific message, but they did. So a side note here, if the Lord gives you a word, gives you a message, gives you a prophecy for somebody, deliver it to them. Be bold and just deliver it to them. You never know if you're going to be the one who confirms something that the Lord has spoken to them already. It might be a tiny thing. It might not make any sense in the world to you, but be bold. Be bold and deliver it. Now, prophecy in a word, there's rules about this. It should be uplifting. If it's not, it may not be from the Lord. So be careful, but deliver it if you get one. You may be the confirmation that person was looking for. So now we go back. What do you think happened at this point? The shepherds go back and they tell everybody about Jesus. They, pra they parade into Jerusalem and they're screaming it from the rooftops that the Messiah has been born, right? No. That's not at all what happened. In fact, it was a 
total kind of a dud. Luke 2.20, the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. So they just, they just went back to their flocks. Hey, that was pretty cool, huh? Yeah, did you see that? Yeah, that was neat. Cool, let's praise God. They didn't tell anybody else. It just stayed there with them, them and their friends and maybe the people they ran into. They knew about it. And what happens at this point? What happens at this point? Mary and Joseph, they get, to, they get to then go into Jerusalem and they get to relax and they get to maybe kick back while she recovers? No. Eight days later, they go in and they have, they have Jesus at the temple and he's circumcised at the temple and then immediately they pack up and they have to run to Egypt. So not only walking the 90 miles pregnant, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but now that she's just given birth less than a week ago, now they have to pack up the newborn baby all their st- and walk to Egypt where they hide out for a couple years because Herod is after them. We'll talk about that in a separate, separate message. But no adoring multitudes, no parades, no trains, not even a ride. They just had to walk. And in fact, it's 12 years before Jesus makes any kind of a ripple in history at that time. Twelve years later, Mary and Joseph are traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. We've heard this story many times. Jesus goes with them. They leave. They're headed back home, and they forget Jesus. At some point, they realize Jesus isn't with them. So in a panic, they run back to Jerusalem, and they see him there, and he's teaching. He's teaching, and they're amazed. The people that hear him are absolutely amazed by this young man and what he says to them. Now, so at that point, certainly, the parade must have happened then. They must have taken him up into the temple and said, this, this is the Messiah, because look at all he knows, right? That didn't happen either. Small little phrase that documents what happened in that time says Luke 2.52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I'm sorry, that's later. The first one, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's Luke 2.40. That's what happened right after that visit to the temple. But when that's over, he just goes back to life as a carpenter's son. 18 more years. So the birth... The big triumphant announcement to the shepherds, 12 years before Jesus makes any kind of a ripple at all, then he's teaching, then 18 more years before he begins his ministry on earth. That's 30 years. Forget about the six, 700 of prophecy before his birth. What about those shepherds? What do you think they were thinking? Like, this is the Messiah. They probably went back to the camp and things are going to change tomorrow. I tell you what, the sun's going to come up. It's never going to go down. The Messiah is here. Our, our enemies will be conquered. Life is going to change. Uh-uh. Nothing changed for them for 30 years. And when it did change, when Jesus' ministry started, it got worse. And it got worse fast. That's not what the Messiah was expected to do for them. But they had the hope, and they knew it, but hope, here's the bottom line, all this, the point to this whole thing is that hope in the Lord is not dependent on timing. 
Our timing, certainly. Who could hold on to a promise? Who here could hold on to a promise for 30 years before just giving up on it? They did, and that wasn't even the biggest stretch of time. Hope in the Lord is not dependent on our idea of timing. God's promises do not have an expiration date. When the Lord speaks it, it is a promise, and we can hope in that. Remember, hope is a surety. It's a certainty, as if you are bound by a rope to God, and we can count on that. This, that idea, that hope is what we celebrate this Christmas, and that is where I place my attention. That is where my joy and my peace comes from, and that is good news of great joy. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Let's pray that in a season like this, that we have a hope. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that when things are in turmoil and the more things seem to be in turmoil, the more your truth comes to the surface. The more things shake, the more things fall by the wayside, the more that your truth and your words stand unshakable. So, Father, when we look around and all we see is turmoil and things falling down around us, help us to focus our eyes not on what is not good, but focus on you and your promises and the fulfillment of your promises. So, Lord, set our hearts at rest. Set them at at ease. Let us look at the things of the world as reasons to rejoice that it's not up to us to figure it out that you have already done that. And you sent your son, Jesus, to reconcile us to you as the first step in fulfilling all of your promises to your people. We are thankful that we are called your people. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you're here in-house and you want to celebrate communion with us at the tables in the back, we have little single-serve cups. You can just grab one. Um, and celebrate with us. If you're at home watching this anytime, you can grab some elements. The elements themselves are not particularly important. It's a representation. It's what you feel in your heart about it. And so as we take communion together, the baby Jesus, born in the spirit of the Virgin Mary, came to this earth became flesh, heralded as the king and the savior of the world to just simple men. And we partake in that joy, that joy of that announcement that happened all that time ago, Jesus coming in the flesh to live among us. Now he lived on earth 33 years as a man, experiencing what we experience Working, growing, playing, laughing, having friends, teaching. All of the experiences that we go through, he went through. And after 33 years of that, he gave it up. And he fulfilled his destiny by offering his body as a sacrifice for you. Did you ever think about that? He didn't come down from heaven 
and immediately go to the cross. He lived a life and he experienced what we experienced and then gave that up for you. He gave it up for those who knew him, for those who didn't, those who would go to him and for those who wouldn't. And it's offered to all. And we take communion in whatever form you have, we take that in remembrance of what he did and acceptance of that. Take the bread. And the blood of Christ is simply the blood of the new covenant offered in sacrifice for the sin of many. Take the blood. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. You can worship with us. They've got some great songs. God bless.
for what you've done.